I think it would be appropriate at this time to stand. And uh, in honor of God's Word, I'd like to read our passage of Scripture. It comes from Colossians chapter 3. This week, um, because we're talking about the topic of extreme makeover, dress for success, I even brought a new Bible to read from today. It is the largest Bible known to man now published. It's the ESV Study Bible, and it is a heavyweight Bible. And I'll be reading from that translation starting in chapter 3, verse 5. Let me read it for you. It says, Put to death, therefore, what is earthly in you, sexual immorality, impurity, passion, evil desire, and covetousness, which is idolatry. On account of these things, the wrath of God is coming. In these you too once walked when you were living in them, but now you must put them all away. And then he lists the following things. Anger, wrath, malice, slander, and obscene talk from your mouth. Do not lie to one another, seeing that you have put off the old self with its practices and have put on the new self, which is being renewed in the knowledge after the image of its creator. Here there is not Greek or Jew, circumcised and uncircumcised, barbarian, Scythian, slave, free, but Christ is all and in all. Therefore, put on then as God's chosen holy ones, uh, holy and beloved, compassionate hearts, kindness, humility, meekness, and patience, bearing with one another. And if anyone has complained against other, forgive each other as far as the Lord has forgiven you. So you also must forgive. Verse 14, and above all, and above all these put on love, which binds together in perfect harmony. And let the peace of Christ rule in your hearts, to which you indeed were called in one body and be thankful. Let the word of Christ dwell in you richly, teaching and admonishing one another in all wisdom, singing psalms, hymns, and spiritual songs with thankfulness in your hearts to God. And whatever you do in word or deed, do everything in the name of the Lord Jesus Christ, giving thanks to God through our Father in Him. Heavenly Father, we ask that your word would become truth in our lives today. In Jesus' name, amen. If you'll take your sermon notes out, we are in Colossians chapter 3, and uh, we're kind of tying this into our Christmas series because I think every one of us at some point want to, to uh, look good. Uh, I think some of us, you know, have more or less to work with when it comes to that category, but in the end... Uh, sometimes, you know, you just, you got to do what you got to do. And I think for all of us, uh, most of us enjoy getting some kind of, of new Christmas clothes. Now, I think that the age of the person determines whether they really want Christmas clothes. I'm pretty sure anybody under the age of 10 who left the service, they really don't care about Christmas clothes. In fact, they rebel against getting them or wearing them. But as you get older, Christmas clothes become more important. In fact, how many of you have purchased a new wardrobe of any kind? Wardrobe is a very expansive term, I realize, but a wardrobe of any kind in the last month. You've purchased something. All right. And it reminds me, it reminds me of a, a Bible professor I had at Biola University. He was an old crusty guy by the name of Dr. Curtis Mitchell. And back then, we, they were, there were debates, and this was in 
the late 70s about the appropriateness of makeup for the Christian woman. I'm thinking, wow, really? In Southern California about makeup? There's some debate. And here's what his commentary, ladies, was on makeup. He said this, if the barn needs painting, paint it. I said, hello? I'm thinking even back then that's politically incorrect. I mean, come on. But Paul gives us a perspective on this extreme makeover. And some of you have watched the show, and there's so many versions of it. But the bottom line is he's going to give us some very practical advice about our spiritual wardrobe. In fact, there are some things he says in this passage that we got to dump out of our closet. And in fact, we have to replace them with new clothes. And so as Christ followers, Jesus is giving us in this passage kind of an extreme spiritual makeover. And thus, the sermon prop for today. Um, would you look at the scriptures with me? Look at your notes. First of all, we see the death penalty in verse 5. He says, put to death the following things. Now, you've got to understand something. If you look at this context, in, not in relationship with verses 1 through 4, this looks like a long list of sin management issues that we're going to have to manage. Like, oh my gosh, I can't do this, got to do that, put off that. But remember, if you go back at the beginning of chapter 3, we've been raised with Christ. And Christ, who is our life, is the central being of our existence, and our minds are set on things above. So he said, in light of all these spiritual truths, then you get to live a different way, but this is tripping you up. And in fact, if you're going to have those kind of heavenly priorities, this stuff over here, we got to get rid of. And the word he used, put to death, means to eradicate. Now the question is, do we do the eradicating? No. The Holy Spirit does that work. This isn't you being better or cleaning up for God so you feel better about coming to church. He's saying that when Christ is Lord of all and in all, He, through the power of the Holy Spirit, will begin to change you from the inside out, and these things won't be a part of your experience. We've got to cut them out of our lives. The Holy Spirit does. Now, I, it's like uh, cutting down dead branches. Now, I know something about cutting down trees as of Friday. I spent nine hours cutting down trees, three of them, and shaping, well, actually, the guy did the shaping, did all, I did just, like, carried the logs. But the bottom line is he knew what to cut, what was dead, what needed to be pulled away. And see, saying, cut that stuff out, eradicate it. Now, here's a caution. We have a propensity towards idolatry. We have a propensity towards idolatry. And maybe it's American idolatry of all sorts. And there's, there's two reasons for that. Number one, these things entrap us. They entrap us. They distract us from a godly focus. And whether it's another world religion, like a Hindu god, they distort God when we uh, are involved in those things. We don't see God clearly. And what will happen is it will destroy you if you allow these things, according to this text, get a foothold in your life. You have to destroy it. Now, I have a skin condition that you may or may not know of uh, that is called, I have a form of skin cancer, and it's called basal cell skin cancer, and I've had a number of things removed from my face and arms. And it's very interesting 
Though that's a very slow-moving cancer unless you don't take care of it. And I would like to suggest to you that in the same way, as you look at these five things, the first things he says to put off, to get rid of, to get out of your closet, those are slow-moving cancers that start very small. But if you don't pay attention to these five things, let me tell you, it can cause disaster, and it will, these things will kill you spiritually. So not only do they entrap us, but they are earthly. It's, and they tend to be things that are very narcissistic. These five things that I'm going to share with you, they, these are things that I want, things that please me. Look, and when we look at these in order, you're going to see that each one of these are very, very self-serving. And they have a very temporal or kind of what we call carnal nature to them. They're not pure. They're not from God. So what happens is when we say we're going to set our minds on things above, what happens is we want to pursue God with all of our heart, but what happens is the world will always give you a, a false substitute, another idol that, that, he, that is kind of a false substitute for the genuine love and plan that he has for us. And I think this is one of those things when we get to heaven, I want to ask God, if in fact we are sold out to God and we want to live with him for all our life, I believe that what Satan's strategy, and even more so today, is to pervert genuine love. And if he can cause you to fall in any of these areas, your spiritual life is just torpedoed and in the tank. And so it's very interesting that he's going to say these things first, and then he's got a whole nother list of stuff that you're going to put off. And that's a different list and a different kind of thing that distracts us. So let's just look at the first five. What are the culprits? He says there are these five things, and you can see them in your text. The first one is sexual immorality. This is referring very specifically to having a sexual relationship with someone outside the bonds of marriage. And if it happens before you're married, the scripture calls that fornication. If it happens in the context of marriage and you cheat on your spouse, it's called adultery, sexual immorality. Uh, immorality. And so that begins very subtly, oftentimes what we allow ourselves to see and to look at. Number two, impurity. It's a different kind of immorality. And this is this idea of kind of uh, unclean thoughts. And, and, and the Greek word, it's interesting, we get our word catharsis. This is the idea of you have no moral uh, compass in your life. Uh, and there's just things that are inappropriate. The scripture says, I made a covenant with my eyes not to look lustfully at a girl, Job 31, verse 1. That would be that kind of impurity. Number three, passion, where we get our word pathos or pathos, this uh, Ill illegitimate desire. You might want to write the word addiction next to this word because it's where addictions come from. It's, and it's the idea that, that satisfying lust is like pouring water into a pot with a hole in the bottom. It'll never, ever be enough. And what happens is these things play off each other. They're not sequential, but it could hit you from any of these angles. Number four, uh, 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 number four evil desire. Anything that's morally, it's a general sense, kind of, you know, what, what is that apple that's luring you away from God? And that could be a whole host of things. 
And today, I'm not going to take the time to ask you to apply each one of these. I, wanna, I want you to see this in context, and we'll come back to the end and say, what is God saying to us? Number six is covetousness. An easier word to write down might be the word greed, all right? And maybe it's all about money for you. Maybe it's about a house. Maybe it's about the right job or driving the right car. It's any of those materialistic desires that, is, that includes lust that kind of disregards the rights of others. Someone said it this way, it is arrogant and ruthless assumption about greed that all other persons and things exist for one's own benefit. Uh, the ultimate issue with greed is a self-focused kind of narcissistic approach to life. It's this idea that it's all about me, and it's usually about what you don't have, and you look at wishing you did have. And so, what I want to suggest is whatever you worship... Whatever you put your trust in, that's really your God. And I've said it before, but the things that you fear the most may be the very thing that is that false substitute that is, is some lesser God in your life that you're trying to fill that void with. Now, I want to suggest that maybe some of you in this room today may have stumbled here because it's Christmas time. You got to go to church or you've been invited here. And I, wanna, I want you to understand that if you just saw this message in, its, in this short, narrow frame, you go, man, Christianity's about a bunch of don'ts. But you've got to understand, we've spent two chapters talking about the wonderfulness of this saving power that Jesus Christ provides through his death, burial, and resurrection on the cross. And so uh, make sure as you're sharing this, as you teach it, as you go into Bible studies, that we don't look at this not in the context of the larger text. Zwingli, who was a great uh, missionary statesman, said this, do I possess things or do they possess me? So those are the five culprits, the sins of perverted love. Now, the question comes up, okay, I get that. Why do we need to put off all this stuff? Can't you, can it kind of coexist? Come on, you don't have to be perfect. In fact, we've said this phrase, Christians aren't perfect, they're just forgiven. Can't you just kind of stumble along? And, and why are these so damaging? Well, I want to suggest two reasons. According to verse 6, number 1, sin brings God's judgment to you. Look at verse 6. On account of these, the wrath of God is coming. He's going to deal with this stuff. Now, the wrath he's talking about is a theological term. And so you need to understand that theologically there are there are variances of opinion. I'm going to give you my opinion, but I believe the wrath he's talking about is the wrath of the tribulation that'll, that you can read about in Revelation. You can check it out in 1 Thessalonians 1.10, uh, 1 Thessalonians 5.9, Romans 5.9. That's the wrath of the tribulation. Now, I'm not going to get into eschatology, but there are three different views of what happens during the tribulation. I'll give it simply this much. If, if, you are a pre, if you believe in a pre-trib position, you go, what is that? That just means you're going for it gets really bad. You're up and out, all right? Now, I'm a pre-tribber. I, I really pray that that is exactly what happens. But if it's not, I quickly move to the mid-trib position because <laughs> that means I go in the three-and-a-half-year mark, and then we're gone. If that doesn't happen, I'm going, man, those guys at Westmont did get it right. Oh, <laughs> And then... Gundry and all those guys, that's a post-trib position you go at the end of the seven years. Now, if that's all confusing to you, 
you know, go talk to one of the elders. They'll explain Revelation to you in seven minutes or less. All right? So sin brings judgment. Number two, verse seven, sin belongs in the believer's past. Look at verse seven. In these you two once walked when you were living in them. These Christians in Colossae once lived like that. This was their past. And in fact, this sign up there, don't look back, you're not going that way. That's such a good advice for those of the Christians. Don't look back at your mistakes. Don't wallow in the mire of your failures. Don't beat yourself up for all the things that you've done wrong. If you're saved by grace, live in that grace. Now, you know, some of us go, yeah, but what about, you know, I'm just going to sin so that grace can abound? Well, Paul dealt with that in another passage. You can read that. But that's in our past, so don't look back. It's fact, it's all in our past. Now, he then comes to another set of things that he says, but you also have to put this stuff away. And the easiest way for me to teach this is to put a chart in your bulletin and show you this all in one context. So let's put it up, and I want to explain something. So those of you who are note takers, you can start filling in the notes right now, and you can write the left column and the right column. So look at the charter. He's saying, put off, these are the barriers, put off all these six things in verses 8 and 9. And then put on these things as replacements. God never tells you to put off something without providing something for you to put on. And I think this is one of these great texts where if you compare the two lists, this is one of those things where I say God is, is showing us that his word is inerrant. Because I believe the antidote to every one of those things and those six things on this column are met with those things in the right column. And I just match it up Greek word for Greek word, and it's amazing, and I'll take you through this. He says, put off that, but put on this. And each one of the things in the right column answers the problem in the left column. He doesn't just say, hey, stop doing that stuff. He says, stop doing this and replace it with that. So let's look at it very quickly. You could unpack this, just this chart. We could spend a whole sermon on, but we're not going to get there. We're gonna, we are going to land this plane today, I guarantee it. I, th I think, I think. All right, here we go. So he says, put off, dispose of. Um, we don't have to deal with this with smallpox today or any of those kind of diseases like the plague of the, of the Middle Ages. But it's the idea of getting rid of this stuff because it is deadly to you. And he's saying, put off these things. Now, for those of you who like to remember things, I'm going to give you different words that all begin with R that will help you remember what to put off. First of all, he says, put off anger. So right next to it, write the word revenge. This is that kind of subtle kind of hostility. Have you ever heard of this phrase? I don't get mad. I just get even. All right. Some of you operate in that arena. That's kind of how you're a slow simmering crockpot when it comes to anger. Number two, he says, put off wrath. Let's put the word rage. The first one is the word orge. The second one is thumos. It's an explosive. It's a passionate outburst. It's the kind of anger that just goes boom. Now, I had neighbors that practiced wrath in their home. I was nine years old the very first time it happened. We were brand new in the neighborhood, and we have these crazy neighbors. I knew that something was wrong, 
that the first week I had a, a baseball go over the fence, land in their bushes in the front of their porch. I went over to pick it up, and before I could get there, the lady came out the front door, picked up the baseball, and said, it's mine! I'm nine years old. I'm thinking she's the Wicked Witch of the West. The Land of Oz is right here in West Covina. So I knew something was just a little different. And they did crazy stuff. They yelled and screamed. It was horrible. Wrath was a part of their experience. And one night, I was home. My sister was babysitting. I was nine. She was 17. She was hating that because she couldn't go out watching the young child. And so I hear this, I mean, it is blood curdling. I'm thinking she's murdered the guy, you know? I'm thinking something has erupted. It was the high school girl on the front porch screaming. And what happened was every time her parents really got into it, she would scream until one of the neighbors would call the police. And then the police would come and break up this fight. That's the wrath that we're talking about, this rage, this explosive kind of anger. So anger or revenge, wrath or rage. Malice, what is malice? Just write the word rude next to it. It's just kind of general evil, this wickedness. It really refers to being kind of this malicious speech kind of that kind of leads to the next one. Fourth is slander. Write the word rumor next to that one. It's when you're accused falsely, when people lie about you, they gossip about you, when they insult you, both behind your back and maybe even face to face. Slander. It's destroying someone's reputation by how you speak of them. Number five, obscene talk. Just write raunchy next to that one. Raunchy. All right? Filthy, disgraceful, dishonorable speech. And I got to tell you, it's hard to watch TV, isn't it, today? Because there's so much of that that's not bleeped anymore. It's just right out there for all to see. Now, he gives you those five things, and he kind of creates a summary of that. He says, put all that stuff off. And, he, and the summary of doing all that is, do not lie to one another. Now, you say, why would he say don't lie to one another? I mean, that seems so different than the first five. Because he knows human nature. What do we tend to do if those things were a part of life? What do we tend to do as Christians? What do we say? We say, oh, it's, it's not really that bad. I only lose my temper once in a while. It's only when I'm hungry. It's only when I'm cranky. It's only when I've worked all day. It's only when, and we make excuses for ourselves. And so he anticipates that. He says, don't make any excuses for yourself. Stop lying to one another. Don't distort it. Don't, dis- don't be deceived. Now, we know lying comes straight from the pit of hell. Look at John 8, That's from Satan. It's not from God. Now, not all of these are overt. So he's saying, don't pretend and cover it up. Don't pretend that at Sundays, oh, I'm the good little Christian. And then the real stuff happens at home. We've already documented well through church history. There is amazing transformation when you come down Cain and make a ride on T.O. Boulevard. That rageful car f- of cars filled with screaming magically ceases and it was as if there was a children's choir entering the parking lot singing melodious tunes by the time you get here. Why is it your worst arguments happen at Sunday morning at 9.43 on your way to church? He says, quit lying about this stuff. Put it away. 
And he says that that old self, even that's the old you, can become a rut in your life spiritually. It can become a habit. Here's a little quote for you. Sow a thought, reap an action. Sow an action, reap a habit. Sow a habit, reap a character. Sow a character, reap a destiny. What is it we're planting in our lives? So he says, put on this. Instead of those bears, here's the bridge. And look at verses 12 to 13. Now, I'm going to come back to those other verses I skipped in the middle. Um, but let's, what's the antidote? So instead of anger, interesting, he says, put on compassionate hearts. Now, just before that, just know that the words holy and chosen and beloved, he put those there. I'm not going to unpack them for you, but those are all Jewish terms uh, used for Gentiles. So his readers would say, oh, I remember those. And he says, put on compassionate hearts. Show mercy, this inner yearning, this deep feeling. So instead of being what? Instead of being angry towards people, don't owe bitter grudges. Don't seek revenge. Give them a second chance. Be compassionate towards them. One of the greatest examples of this in all the scriptures is Joseph and how he treated with his brothers in Genesis 45. He could have exacted revenge on them. If you don't know the story, read it. It's a great example of how God shows compassion to us when we don't deserve it, when we have abandoned God. Joseph represents that God figure in the Old Testament of how God treats us with compassion. Kindness, that's the antidote for the second kind of anger, for that explosive anger that is... That's why the scripture says in Proverbs, what? A soft answer turns away, what? Wrath. It turns that away. It, it stills that. It's, it's this, this whole idea that show kindness. Don't, don't, don't be hard-nosed. Don't, don't fight anger with anger. And we know domestic violence is a huge issue in our culture today. I'm reminded that sometimes that kind of goes passive-aggressive, doesn't it? We don't show kindness. We're just kind of passive-aggressive about stuff. George Bernard Shaw once wrote a letter to Winston Churchill. He says, enclosed are two tickets to the opening night of my first play. Bring a friend if you have one. Churchill replied, dear Mr. Shaw, unfortunately, I will be unable to attend the opening night of your play due to a prior engagement. Please send me tickets for a second night if you have one. So sometimes we get a little passive-aggressive instead of putting on kindness. When people are mad at you, how do you respond? I can't remember if I told this in the parenting series, and if I've told this, forget me, uh, forget it, we'll just move on. But the bottom line is, I remember the time when a neighbor was so mad at me for a reason that really wasn't that big a deal. Someone had given us a jacuzzi. And they said that uh, we could have it. Now, when you hear the words portable jacuzzi, that is called an oxymoron, all right? <laughs> if you don't know what an oxymoron is, it has nothing to do with your intelligence. But it is one of those things that are confusing. And so the bottom line is we're moving this jacuzzi. And about 15 or 20 big buff college guys, and the idea is, and, yeah, and some of you go, did you empty it? Of course, yes, we emptied it. But we got it over to our house, got it lifted off the state bed truck, and we lived in a community that had block walls, and we could not get it between the house and the block wall. So get this, seven guys on one side of the block wall, seven guys on the other side of the block wall, carrying this over our heads between the roof lines. Now you say, that's an accident waiting to happen. Yeah, well, nobody lost any fingers, thank goodness. But the bottom line is, 
we were anxious to get done with this, and so people parked everywhere on my lawn in the driveway, blocking my neighbor's driveway. He came home, could not get into his driveway. He was not uh, completely aware of his surroundings. Let's just say he was inebriated. Yes, he was drunk. He came across my, the street. Char- we were basking in the glory that we had not lost fingers, and we had just set the jacuzzi down. And he came charging at me, swearing at me, upset with me, and I would say that would have qualified for wrath, rage. And I had a decision to make. I could have taken him. <laughs> that just appeals to the, you know, the male ego, right? I get it. I could have taken him. But I also was well aware of the fact that I'm a Christ follower. I got 15 college guys watching how I'm going to respond. Now, I got to tell you, I'm only telling you this because it's one of the few times where I got it right. Because sometimes it's so easy to respond in anger to someone who's angry at you. You just want to, you know, just, "Mm." and so I walked toward him. I was like putting my hands up like this, and I'm trying to get him to calm down. And he's going to come almost like, like, chest butt me and he's like and it's bad his breath is bad he's like spitting in my face not trying to but he's like this right now I'm remembering Proverbs that says a soft answer turns away wrath so I I said I'm so sorry you are right I I I I need to move the car hey whose car is that you know and get in that car you know and move your car and he goes and he just just a string of 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 ex- expletives coming out of his mouth. Well, it's getting a little tense. I'm thinking he's going to take a swing at me. And he was bigger than me, but, you know, when you're drunk, you know, you know, and I'm thinking I can miss the first punch, but I don't want to hit him, and I don't want to get hurt, and I don't want to be a bad witness. I don't want to do any of that. Well, the funniest thing is one of the guys helped me move was a six foot four, 245-pound linebacker playing college football. And his, by the way, his first name was Darcy. Don't ever make fun of Darcy's first name. Just a whole, you know. So as I'm, I'm trying to de-escalate this, he walks up right behind me. He whispers in my ear. He goes, do you want me to take him out, Pastor John? <laughs> I said, no, Darcy, we, we, we've got it. You see, we want to respond in anger, and yet God calls us, just show kindness just show kindness. I apologized. The funniest thing was the next morning, we both pulled out of our driveways at the same time, and I know he probably regretted it. He thought, oh, I was an idiot. And we pulled out, we, and we kind of pulled in the driveway and did this thing at the same time, so I'm directly across from him. I just waved and smiled and said, have a nice day, and he looked at me like, oh. He didn't want to say anything. He was embarrassed, but a soft answer turns away wrath. All right, so Get rid of malice. Instead of put malice, put on humility. Put on humility. This having this realistic view of ourselves. This idea that uh, we don't have to be rude to someone else. Just be humble. This honest self-evaluation. And humility and the next one, meekness, kind of go hand in hand. Philippians 2.3 says, considers others as more important than yourself. Don't be stubborn. And it takes great spiritual discipline to compromise, to admit that you're wrong, to be humble when someone's just wronged you, when you don't defend yourself, you don't try to, you know, 
fix every little thing. Just be humble. All right, now, look at number four, slander. All right, what's the antidote to slander? He says it's meekness, or another word is gentleness. It's not behaving harshly. It's this uh, submission under control or strength under control. And the problem is we mistake meekness for weakness. He's not saying be weak. In fact, the humorist J. Upton Dixon said this. He wrote, uh, 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 writing a book title called this, Cower Power. He also founded a group for submissive people called Doormats, which stands for Dependent Organization of Really Meek and Timid Souls. And he says, if there are no objections, their motto is, the meek shall inherit the earth, if that's okay with everybody. You see, and their symbol is a yellow traffic light. Uh, we kind of see meekness as this kind of milk toast, like, oh, just kind of cowering. And he's saying, no, meekness is strength under control. And when someone is slandering you, I got to tell you, if you ever had to summon up self-discipline, it's when someone is calling you out and it's false. And they're slandering you and they're, and they're saying stuff about you. Believe it or not, that happens to pastors. But you know what? It's not unique to the pastoral profession. Any of you who've been thrown under the bus at your place of employment by someone who was climbing the corporate ladder and they did it at your expense knows what I'm talking about. The hardest thing on the church side is when someone said something that's not true about you and it influences your relationships in the church and then people are left to have to figure out. They don't know, quote, who to believe. Let me tell you, you want to torpedo a church? Just start slandering each other. Just backstab each other. Just say things that are kind of the truth but not the whole truth. Now, we all know people have differing perspectives on how events went down. But can we agree that as the body of Christ, if we're healthy and we're setting our minds on things above, that slander and innuendo is only going to destroy us. It'll never help us. Go to one another. Talk to one another. Don't make assumptions about what's going on. I had to deal with some rumors that were partially true, but for wrong reasons. It may surprise you that as a pastor, I got fired one time. I did. I was out of church in Yorba Linda for eight months, and I got fired, along with 80% of the management team. We all were, like, showing out the door. And I thought, how will the Lord ever mend that? That's kind of a hard thing to explain. And in the end, they made sure it was said publicly there was no moral issue, et cetera, et cetera. And I won't bore you with all the details, but in the end... The elders that were a part of that process ended up restoring every one of the people that were fired and other information came out and we were all rehired except for one guy who had already gone to another church. For 20 months, I had to live with some stuff that was said about me and I had no recourse. I had no ability to defend myself. And then I thought, isn't it so cool that in those 20 months, where I was living with people who had slandered me, that my God in heaven had such a 
great sense of humor because the church that I was employed at, my wife was also employed at, and she didn't leave the church and stayed employed there for the entire time. And she was that example of meekness and gentleness, and the people who had said some things that weren't true had to deal with her nearly every week. Can you imagine what it must be like when you have to look at her face, sweet and kind, realizing the guilt of what had been done? And in the end, I got to tell you, though the elders were only as good as the information that they had been given to, they, to their credit, went back and made it right. First in a private meeting with us, then in a meeting with 75 paid staff, and then in front of 4,000 people as they restored us when I came back on staff at the same church. So I have a resume that's kind of interesting. They go, oh, you worked eight months at this church? Or you're going, then you're back? I go, it's a story of redemption. It's a story of forgiveness. It's a story how God takes care of your reputation. Amen? Amen. All right, so he says, put that off. And then number five, obscene talk and abusive speech. He says, put on patience. This is the idea of being long-suffering and self-restraining. It's the refusal to retaliate in spite of provocation. It's being patient. If you go back to an Old Testament story, Hosea and Gomer, Hosea is an Old Testament prophet, had a wife that was unfaithful to him. Do you realize that he was faithful to her during that entire time, even though there was an obscene thing going on? And never once in the book of Hosea do you ever see an apology from her to him. You talk about forgiveness, about the idea of showing patience even when someone has been mean-spirited towards you. That's a great characteristic. Now, he does the same thing. Instead of just lying about stuff, he says the summary to all that, do all those five things, but the bottom line is just bear with and forgive each other. Just bear with and forgive each other. Bear with holding yourself back means putting up with others and enduring discomfort. And then forgiving is this idea of not holding a grudge or a grievance. And maybe you've got to let go of something today. Maybe there's somebody or something in this church. You've got to just let go of it. For some of you, it's a family member. Maybe it's a sister, a brother, an aunt, an uncle, somebody where you, you're cross-threaded. And in the end, you can practice all these things, put those on. But if you want the summary of the whole list, just bear with and forgive each other. Someone wrote this poem, To live above with the saints we love, oh, that will be glory. But to live below with the saints we know, well, that's another story. You see, there's always another side to the picture. Forgiveness doesn't say, I'm going to forgive once you've taken care of all your business. Forgiveness says, sometimes I just forgive you even though you haven't taken your side of the business. You haven't dealt with it. Now, let's go to the distinctions as we wrap up. Look at verses 10 and 11. In the middle of that, he says, this is your sanctification. It's a process. He says, put on the new self, which is being renewed in the knowledge and the, after the image of his, its creator. So even in this text, he's reminding you, you can't do this muscle up in the power of your own flesh. It takes the Holy Spirit. It takes the new self, and that comes from the image of its creator, which is Jesus Christ. The image of the creator, that's Jesus. He's the one who created the world, and we've become more and more like him. 
Secondly, our salvation has no prejudice. Look at verse 11. There are no, and he gives you four categories. He's covering every base here, all right? So essentially, Jesus Christ is all we need. And, the, and if he indwells you, he permeates all your relationships. And there's, and there's no prejudice. There's no barriers. You compare that to Galatians 3.28. You compare this passage with Galatians 3.28, you'll see the same context. So there are four barriers that, that Jesus obliterates. First, there's no racial barriers. That's the idea of Greek and Jew. No religious barriers, you know, circumcised or uncircumcised. No cultural barriers. That's barbarian or Scythian. I won't get into it, but a barbarian is someone who didn't know Greek. And the language was foreign. And actually that word barbarian was a way of making fun of them because they couldn't pronounce the R sound uh, uh, in the Greek language. Scythians were a kind of barbarian. They came from the Black Sea and they were the lowest type of the low. They were the, the term that the Romans used to insult foreigners. And then finally, there's no social barriers, no slave or free. You can check out 1 Corinthians 12, 13 for a parallel passage. So we do all that. There's no barriers. So what's the desired results? And then he's going to say, if this is the what you live, if you have this extreme spiritual makeover, this is what you're going to look at. This will be the results in the church. So let me just give you forewarning as I look at these five things use it as an opportunity for you to say hey how are we doing here and in fact on the back of your bulletin I've given you a little or on the notes here a, a little checklist for you to kind of just ask yourself is this true is this part of my experience okay so let's look at them together as we wrap up number one love will be preeminent if this is the way we live beloved he says, above all, he's put on love, which binds everything together in perfect harmony. Love is the belt that holds everything together. And in fact, some people believe that if you put on love, it answers the rest of these. It's like the fruit of the Spirit is love, and then some people believe that the rest of that list is just an amplification of what love is. Love is, love is all, all the fruit of the Spirit. John 13, 35, all men will know that you are my disciples if you love one another got to tell you something. Yesterday, I was bragging about you, about you as a church. In fact, all this week, I've been on the phone a lot with these candidates. And they said, describe the church. You know, they got the little analysis they get from Denny from Slingshot. But just like, when they say describe the church, it's code from pastor to pastor. Tell me the real skinny on this place. Like, what, <laughs> like chew the fat with me. What's really going on here? Here's what I said. In various forms, I've been doing this for the last month. I, I told them, I said, first of all, this, this church is so accepting. They're so willing to embrace them. I said, man, I came in here in August, and I, I had no idea what I was getting myself into. And it was like, within weeks, I felt like one of you. That was the first thing I said. The other thing I, I told them is that people are really, really committed to doing stuff for God. And I kind of just went off some of the different things, like this group of small, a couple of our small groups feed the homeless, the, you know, one Sunday a month. And we've got this guy who's really committed to apologetics, and he's doing this thing called the Truth Project. And I just kind of described all of it. And then we got this Awana thing, and then we got this Agape Choir, and then we got this incredible children's ministry, and our youth ministry. I mean, they actually sanctioned shooting one another. <laughs> and like this airsoft thing. 
they thought that was kind of, and this is the funny thing, guys, that kind of know this stuff. They go, your insurance company approves that? Oh, yeah, in fact, one of our elders kind of helped them see the light of day with that and, and making sure the insurance covered it. And then you go, wow. And so it was so easy, but I said the thing that really is the bow of this church is that I think people actually really do love each other. And the guy goes, yeah, 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 right. We all say we, we love one another. That's all you agree with me, right? I said, no, no. I mean, I'm watching how people care for one another. I told them about the number of trips so many of you have met to go see Roland as he's dying. That's love. That's love. I told them about how you reach out to people who can't make their rent payment. And one of you in particular brought a family who's from another religion. We paid them their rent and they showed up church the next week. They love one another. And so I got to just tell you, friends, if you love one another like that, your next pastor is going to be on cloud nine for a long time. They say, well, you don't want to fool them with that. They'll get to know us and then the honeymoon is over. No, if you believe the lie, then that's the way it'll be. But if you live according to these scriptures, which I see you doing, just keep love as the preeminent thing. Number two, he says then, secondly, if you live like this, look at this, peace will be presiding. Look at verse 15. And let the peace of Christ rule in your hearts, which indeed you were called to one body. See, this result of all this is peace with God personally, but it's also will be peace with one another corporately. The body of Christ will get along better if love is preeminent and peace is presiding. And I like this because I, I studied that, this idea of will rule in your hearts. It's used of an umpire in deciding the outcome of an athletic contest. You see, when peace rules, that's the arbitrator of disputes. Is this going to bring peace in our family? You know, being priest to us uh, personally, how about in the body? Let's think this through before we say something. Do something we'll regret. Thirdly, thankfulness will be practiced. Thankfulness will be practiced. And he does it, he talks about it in three different verses. In the end of verse 15, end of verse 16, end of verse 17. He says, be thankful. He says, sing with thankfulness in your hearts. Verse 16. Give thanks to God the Father through him. Now, of the five things he says will be the results, three times he mentions the idea of thankfulness. You get the idea that's important? Thankfulness will be practiced, and that's more than just on Thanksgiving weekend on that Thursday when we have our turkeys. Thankfulness ought to be a part of what's a part of our church. So I want to give you a little assignment. It's not in my notes. I just thought of it. It came running through my mind. This could be dangerous. How about this week you write a note to someone and thank them for something. Thank them for something. Surprise them. Put a little post-it on their car. You can do it with unfamily members. You can do it in the church. Write a note. Email them. Tell somebody what you're thankful for them about. You see, gratefulness and thankfulness are marks of someone, I think, who's a committed Christ follower. Because when you're thankful, it transcends the ups and downs of personal tragedy. You're thankful through the tough times, through the mountaintops, through the, through the deserts. Thankfulness. Then he says, the preaching and praise will be passionate. 
And I love that picture we have up behind me. Let the word of Christ dwell in you richly, teaching, admonishing one another with all wisdom, singing psalms, hymns, and spiritual songs. That's the theology of worship right there. And there's all kinds of it. And I'm proud to say we have a worship pastor who leads us in all kinds of that, those songs. Who has little ones up here reading scripture and singing. That has our, our junior high girls leading us in worship. Agape. Adults. We all are part of this praise that should be passionate. The rabbis used to expound on this word in the Old Testament, the version of that word is dwell, because of the dwelling place of God. And the rabbis later pointed out that he who dwells in a house is the master of the house, not just a passing guest. If Christ dwells in you, he is not just a passing guest in your life. He's the master of the house. And if you've never read that little booklet, My Heart, Christ Home, we should read it because that talks again about what does it mean with Christ dwelling. Well, he says the preaching and praise, if he's dwelling in you, will be passionate. And our worship is predicated on God's word permeating your life. And you see that he's so passionate about this, he gives the same exact instructions. If you go to Ephesians chapter 5, verses 18, 20, he has the similar parallel passage to this one, saying, you've got to teach the word. Let it dwell richly. And then lastly, Jesus will be the priority. The result of all of this, love will be preeminent, peace will be presiding, thankfulness will be practiced, preaching and praise will be passionate, and then Jesus will be the priority. Because look at verse 17, and whatever you do, in word or deed, do everything in the name of the Lord Jesus. He's the example. Why do we do what we do? For God's glory and in the name of Jesus. It says in the scriptures that every knee will bow, every tongue will confess that Jesus is Lord. 1 Corinthians 10, 31, whether then you eat or drink or whatever you do, do all to the glory of God. I love this quote from Billy Graham. He says, life without God is like an unsharpened pencil. It has no point. And so, friends, what's the point of today? Why, why do we want a spiritual makeover? Because ultimately, when love, and we'll look at these together again, when love is preeminent, when peace is presiding, when thankfulness is practiced, when the preaching and praise is passionate and Jesus is the priority, then we're living like Jesus. We're living like Jesus. Chad's going to come and lead us in a, in a closing song. And I want to just ask you, is it time to kind of put off some old clothes? Is it time to do a, an extreme spiritual makeover? Is it, is it this idea that for some of us, there are these barriers that are keeping us from reaching our full potential as a church, as a family, as individuals? You see, I think ultimately, if love is pre preeminent, then it'll be demonstrated in your life. If peace is presiding, it'll characterize your relationships. If thankfulness is practiced, then you'll be thankful as a way of life, not just once a year. If your, if your passion is for God's word and praising him, 
Is it something you do more than on Sundays or is it this kind of, I just want more of that. And if Jesus is your priority, then are we really living like Jesus? Or are we just talking it? There's a lot of meat here today, a lot to process. But if you can take just one thing today, live like Jesus lived. Walk like Jesus. How do you do that? That's what I've been talking about. You can't do it by yourself. You've got to do it in the power of the Holy Spirit that changes you from the inside out. So you say, but I blow it. I mess up. I do too. And what I got to do is I got to confess it. I keep short accounts on the sin in my life. I say, thank goodness God forgave me for that. But Lord, please, don't let me make that same mistake again. You know, there's probably, for some of you in this room, someone who makes you better because of their connection to Jesus. There's some crazy movie I can't even remember the title of, but if Chad heard it, he'd tell me and he'll yell it out to me. And it's Jack Nicholson, and he has this phrase. I'm narrowing it down. Keep going. He has this phrase, and he says, you make me a better man. Ah, it's as good as it gets. 1997, Oscar winner for Best Actress and Best Actor, as well as original screenplay by James L. Brooks. Running time, approximately 132 minutes. Okay, I don't, I've never done this to end a sermon, but that is a knuckle punch. How did I know he would pull that out of the hat? But see, that's really, really, we, we, we can laugh about it, and I don't mean to ruin the moment, but that's exactly, this is exactly how a church should respond, with laughter, with intensity, with passion, because usually for a lot of us, when Jesus is Lord, we're not doing that alone. We need someone to help us. So I got to tell you, church, you make me a better pastor because of your love, because of your great, great generosity, your faithfulness, and your passion for Jesus. Mm-hmm. Mm-hmm.